he's not the typical sneaker endorser. And even he said it himself. He's like, hey, this thing could go either way, you know, and if it goes horribly wrong, I'll, I'll use it as a joke in my old age. Like, remember when I thought I could have a sneaker? So he was sort of hedging. But I wrote to him and, I, and you know, I wrote uh, info at Gary V or whatever it was and said, made it a really concise pitch, which said something like, hey, I believe that entrepreneurs are the new heroes of youth culture and athlete. The idea of playing for the Yankees is a bit old fashioned. And I think you're the face of that. How about we make the first signature sneaker for an entrepreneur? That was it. Podcasting from Boulder, Colorado. This is the Baby Got Backstory podcast, where we dive into the story behind the story of today's most inspiring storytellers, creators, and entrepreneurs. I like big backstories, and I cannot lie. I am your host, Mark Gutman. I'm Mark Gutman, and on today's episode of Baby Got Backstory, how a software executive from England arrived in Los Angeles and revived one of the most iconic sneaker brands in the world. And before we get to today's show, I want to deliver a heartfelt thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I feel so lucky to be doing something I love and that is appreciated by you, the listener. Without listeners, I mean, does a podcast really exist? Channeling my inner Stephen right there. And I want to thank you for taking the time to listen and absorb these amazing stories. I truly believe that stories shape our world and that the very best way we can connect with our fellow humans, find meaning in this thing that we call life, is through stories. But even more, when we're invited into someone else's story, it has this amazing effect. Just like when we travel to foreign lands and realize that those people across the globe, the ones that we thought were so weird or evil or strange or different or don't share our values or our beliefs, we find that they are just like us and that we have so much in common. And that bonds us as humans. And that delivers empathy to our fellow human beings and makes the world right again. Now, if you like and enjoy the show, please take a minute or two to rate and review us over at iTunes iTunes uses these as part of the algorithm that determines ratings on the Apple charts, and ratings help us to build an audience, which then helps us to continue to produce this show. And lastly, this show is all about creating value for you, as well as opening up a dialogue. I realize I'm doing all the talking, but please, let's start the conversation. I am at Mark Gutman on all social channels, primarily Insta, LinkedIn, and Facebook, not a real active Twitter user, and you can always send an email to podcast at wildstory.com with your thoughts and comments. We love feedback. I read all those emails personally, and I will respond, and if you have any great ideas for guests, let me know. I want to know who you want to hear me interview. And now, on to today's show. I love sneakers and shoes, and it probably comes out of being raised in a skate and snow culture as a kid where cool sneakers were everything. And when I put on an awesome pair of sneakers, I feel amazing and cool and dare I say, hip. When I put on a pair of shiny dress shoes, I feel, well, like a banker. No offense to bankers. But as you'll hear today's guest explain, I think that perception and paradigm of who is wearing sneakers is changing. I love shoes so much that when we did a home remodel a couple of years ago, the only thing I fought for 
was the shoe shelf in my closet. It's now lined with sneakers, mostly simple and Vans, a couple of Nike, Adidas, and recently a pair of K-Swiss. K-Swiss is a one-story brand that found itself in decline and is finding its way back to relevance. I remember growing up as a kid in Detroit when the shockingly all-white K-Swiss seemed to become the shoe of choice out of nowhere. Then over the years, it just sort of disappeared. They tried to bring the brand back to relevance with some super funny commercial starring Kenny Powers as the new CEO. But as you'll hear today's guest explain, great story, off-brand. Enter Barney Waters. Barney is a savvy marketer and brand builder, and now the CEO of K-Swiss. And he now has K-Swiss on the right path back to relevancy and profitability. And on today's episode, Barney will talk about how K-Swiss found its differentiator, how K-Swiss landed the Michael Jordan of the entrepreneur world, and how he identified the white space that is allowing K-Swiss to once again become a profitable brand. And now, Barney Water and K-Swiss. All right, Barney, we're here to talk about your ascension as up to the president of K-Swiss and some of the really innovative and amazing things you're doing with that brand. Uh, But before we get there, I'd like to go back a ways and maybe go back a little bit to the beginning. Uh, I understand that you uh, grew up in England, and I think most of our listeners will understand that as soon as they hear you speak as well. But were were you always into shoes? Uh, I guess I was, yes. I I mean, I think uh, growing up, I was into you know, what was hot and what was not, whether that was, you know, clothes, shoes, music. I had a great group of friends that I grew up with and we were always into, you know, what was, you know, making sure you had the right gear on and and that definitely included sneakers. So I always used to buy sneakers. I was always into sneakers, never really dreamt it would become my profession, but, you know, being able to to have done that is, has really made a, a big, impact in my life to, to be able to show up every day to work and really be passionate about what I'm doing. Yeah. And do you have a, a concrete memory of that first time that that switch kind of flipped for you from being a, uh, someone who just, you know, consumed brands to someone who really started to look at them a little bit differently and say, Oh, like there's something here. There, there's something more, uh, to this, uh, this idea of what a brand is rather than me just being a consumer and kind of falling into my tribe or what have you. Yeah, I think it's when I I made the shift in my career from software into sneakers, and that that was when I moved to this to the states. Uh, I was working in the software industry, and I was able to move to the sneaker industry both in a marketing capacity. But I think once I got into the sneaker business, brand became much more important to the consumer. So what our brand stood for, and how our brand communicated, and what the brand represented in that customer's life when it's sneakers versus software is a lot more uh, important. So I think that was probably when I started to learn the importance of brand attaching, you know, attaching to a product more so probably than, than in the software business. Yeah, so so let's go back there. You're you're in the software business. That's a that's a that's sort of a different path than than going down this this later route and this later yeah. chapter of of being a brand builder. Uh, what were you what were you doing there and thinking about that career? What what brought you into software? Well, I was originally in. Uh, I thought I wanted to be a sales guy. My dad was a salesman, and people used to say I had the gift of the gab, as we said in England, which you know you could talk to anyone and sell anything. So I thought I wanted to be a salesman, and I 
did telephone sales. Well, that's what I did to start with. And I would, you know, be cold calling people and selling them computer equipment. And I hated it. You know, I just didn't like being just the guy on the end who was trying to push something on people who usually didn't want it. And uh, I was actually lucky to to move to a great company called Lotus, which is a software company, makers of Lotus 1, 2, 3, and Lotus Notes. And they moved the, the inside sales team into the marketing department. So I kind of fluked my way into marketing at that point and fell in love with it. And and that's when I became a, a marketer versus sales. And, um, you know, that that's how I got into that 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 line of work. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, th- I think, you know, we, we talk about this a lot and you might even talk about this on your uh, podcast, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but, you know, most businesses in, in my opinion, and we talk about on the show are really born out of uh, inspiration, frustration, or desperation. And even this changing career for you of moving on, you know, if I, if I heard you correctly, you said, look, I, I got into sales and, and I hated it. And, and so that yeah. really, you know, is a frustration or a desperation move to make a change. You, you get into marketing. What, what struck you about marketing? What did you love about it? Well, I just love the fact that you're actually, um, you, you know, you're sort of the, the the chess player. You're the one who's who's sort of scheming and calculating and trying to read the market and put together the plan. And I like that. You know, I like the sort of behind the scenes plotting and, the, you know, the puzzle solving, I guess, is was what I think of with marketing is how well can you understand the consumer and how well can you create the product and the story to connect those two, you know, the consumer need with your product solution? You know, that's the puzzle you have to figure out. And I always like that idea of being, you know, not necessarily the, the soldier running out into the field with the gun, but being the guy in the tent looking at the map. <laughs> <laughs> that's sort of how I visualize it, I suppose. I love that analogy and the, yeah. the chess player. That's perfect. I, I agree with you. I, I prefer to do that as well. Yeah. Yeah, and so when you left the software business, what was that that first company you went to that that brought you uh, here to the states? Well, I mo- I moved to the states with Lotus, the software company, and it was a great company, and I learned a ton and some great people, and it was a dynamic company, but it ended up getting bought by IBM, which you know, which ends up which is like working for the government, and that that just drove me crazy. I just really sort of sucked all the life out of and energy out of the company. I felt, and um, I was lucky enough to get an opportunity to go work at Puma, which is was a sneaker brand that was really just on the up and it was just becoming a huge trending fashion sneaker and i got on right right at the perfect time and just it was just an absolute joy you know it was so fun so successful and everything we were doing was really you know relevant to culture youth culture and fashion and style and celebrity and entertainment and sports and it was it was just a great time, and that I, I did that for as head of marketing for Puma. I ended up becoming head of marketing for Puma for North America for about seven years. Yeah, and, and you really helped to build that brand, and and then you have an opportunity uh, to to move on. Uh, that must have been a little bit of a, a difficult choice, and and um, I'm, I'm guessing maybe you you wanted another challenge, or if there's something different, you can share that as well. But is this when you went to Palladium? Exactly. Yes. I, I mean. You know, Puma was was so great, but I, ultimately I was sort of implementing the global strategy in the North American region. That was my job. So, you know, I had a seat at the table for some of those plans, but I wasn't really controlling it. And I felt like I was at a point where I wanted to see what I could do myself. And and so I had an opportunity to, you know, to go really build a brand. It was a, it was a comeback story with Palladium, but it had gone away 
you know, almost entirely outside of a couple of European countries. And I thought it was my chance to put myself to the test to see what I could do, you know, in building a brand. And I just didn't feel like those opportunities would come along very often. So I, so I went for it. And that's what moved me out to, to California. And it, it was a brand that had just been purchased by K-Swiss. So we were a subsidiary of K-Swiss. And there's about four people that were, were rebuilding Palladium. And I did that for four years. Yeah. And, and I think that, that that's a really interesting point. I think, you know, I talked to a lot of marketers and they really think that, oh, if I only had the budget of a Puma or if I only, you know, had a, a job at a, a Nike or a Puma that I'd be able to do all these things. And and the fact that really you were there to implement and execute on their plan and it wasn't as, you know, maybe creative or uh, didn't have the the uh, freedom maybe that some other, other roles have, I think it's just a really interesting insight. Yeah, no question about that. I, I think, you know, you, unless you're, and look, I had I had some I had a lot of freedom, um, but not ultimate decision making, I guess. So I think I was I was in the right role for the time I was there, and I wasn't probably ready to do more. But most of the years I was there, but at the end I was ready to do more. Yeah, I think if you get into these big companies, you you have the benefit of learning from everyone around you because they're probably pretty good people around you. But you do become a bit of a specialist. You know, you're either focused on social media or focused on PR or athlete endorsement or whatever the piece of the puzzle is. When you get into a smaller company or a startup or something more entrepreneurial, you, you, you do touch everything. And that's a huge advantage, I think, is to be able to get that exposure to many more pieces of the pie and, and to not have this big sort of uh, hierarchy above you of decision makers, uh, which, which can be frustrating for people with certain types of characters who prefer to be fast decision making. Yeah, yeah. And so if I'm connecting the dots, um, you know, you come into Palladium, which is a, a subsidiary of K-Swiss, uh, and then you work your way up to your current role today, which is president of, of K-Swiss, uh, the, yeah. the, the K-Swiss, the, the, the athletic shoe line, correct? That's right. Yep. Cool. And then so, you know, I remember K-Swiss as a kid and it had this really interesting sort of place, at least the way I perceived it. And this is just my, you know, perception of it is when I was younger was it had this like definite, this like athletic component, you know, tennis, but it really was a fashion sneaker. And I grew up in the Detroit area. And so you can imagine it was a very, you know, at times uh, urban hip hop kind of uh, fashion sneaker. And, you know, but why don't you uh, start off, if you will, just telling us a little bit about the history of, of K-Swiss and, and where, you know, where we're at today, and we can, we can take it from there. Yeah, well, it was two Swiss brothers who, who founded the company. They moved from Switzerland in the, in the 60s, and they were skiers. And they realized that skiing and ski boots were designed for lateral side-to-side motion, which skiing is. You know, you need tight fit for side-to-side movement and they realized that tennis was the same same thing it was a lack sport that was played from side to side and they figured hey what if we took the design elements of ski boots and applied them to tennis sneakers we could make a really great tennis sneaker and that's what they did and so they moved to california in 1966 and created a shoe called the k-swiss classic which is still today our best-selling shoe and it was a white leather tennis shoe for playing tennis in and that's you know over 50 years ago and in fact they only made the k-swiss classic for 20 years so the second shoe they made came out in 1986 and now we have a full line of of sneakers and but but still anchored around this idea of this a more casual what we call court style so tennis history but more casually worn with jeans 
And and that's the business we have today. About 10% of our business is real tennis shoes for playing tennis. And 90% is is casual sneakers for wearing with jeans or, or whatever. But, but as you correctly said, the brand really peaked in early 2000s around hip hop culture when jeans got baggier. And so you needed a bigger kind of sneaker to fit that same profile of the pants. And Casos was making these chunky white sneakers and it just got huge and became the number two brand at Foot Locker behind Nike. And it's, and it's heyday. It's heyday. And, and where do you sit now or how do you see your position now in the marketplace? Well, you know, you know, trends then shifted. So as they always do, trends shifted and things got profile of pants changed and sneaker trends changed. In fact, I think around that time, I was when I was joining was when I was joining Puma, and Puma was making really brightly coloured, you know, low profile European fashion sneakers. It was almost the polar opposite to white chunky um, American sneakers. So the trend shifted, and K Swiss was sort of left out in the cold, so to speak. And and then it's probably taken that long for trends to sort of turn around again. And now you find that 90s and the early 2000s, that sort of retro athletic type product is really hot again. And that's helped propel us in our quest to bring this brand back to relevance. And that's essentially what I started doing in 2016 as I took over as the president of K-Swiss was to try and bring the brand back to life as it had suffered through many years of decline and losing money. And uh, we, uh, we were sort of going to end this year profitable and with double-digit growth. So, so far, so good, but a long way to go. <laughs> well, congratulations. I mean, as entrepreneurs, we don't often celebrate our successes. So I just wanted to no, take, take no. a moment and say that, that that's fantastic and congratulations. And yeah. so, you know, th- that brings a really interesting question to mind. Like when you when you look at a brand and you're like, all right, we have this great brand story. We have this legacy. There's something here. We know there's something here, but the market certainly isn't responding at the time. Like, what's the first thing you do to bring a brand back to relevance? Like, what, how did you approach that? Well, I think you have to, you know, we did a lot of things, you know, tactically, we did a lot of things around, you know, cutting costs and refining processes and things of that nature. So that, that part can't be underestimated but it's not the fun part, obviously, but we did all of that stuff as well. But the, we, you know, you've got to change your, a lot of people and get new energy and change offices. And we'd had to do a lot of things to really get the energy shifted into a new direction. But then we honed back in on the original history of the company. So I felt like, and I said this a lot at the time, that it case was seemed like a car that had been resprayed multiple times. You know, it'd been tried to be a lot of different things to save itself. And I felt like we needed to get all that old paint off and find out what the original color was and start there. So we sort of got it back down into a heritage American tennis brand. And and so I in fact we sort of specialized again to get a wedge back in the market is was the was the first strategy was to say let's cut more things than we add and boil it down and at the time there were these first signs of white sneakers being being on trend again and people weren't wearing white sneakers at all at this time but but there was these sort of murmurings you know a lot of uh women in paris at paris fashion week had been wearing an old adidas sneaker called the stan smith on the as a casual sneaker and they've been on the front row at the fashion week shows and so there was a buzz around these sort of retro white sneakers so 
at the same time that we specialize back into our original heritage lane, that lane has, was showing signs of becoming popular again. So I think we caught that moment um, and honed in at the right time to give ourselves a wedge to get something working again. And then, you know, once you get that some small thing working, you can then build off of that over the next, which we did, we then built off of that over the next two years to get ourselves where we are now. Yeah. And that's super interesting to me because we talk to a lot of really kind of strong, iconic founders and, you know, it's really easy for them to tell the story or to get people to connect to their story. But coming into someone else's story, that seems like an interesting challenge and and getting back to that, as you you termed it, that first layer of paint and really remembering who you are and and, and building on that. And I I just bring that up to kind of point out the importance of, of connecting with that backstory, whether it's yours or it's, it's, someone else's that started the company, but you know, we have to connect with something and know who we are at some yeah. point. And that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. And, and, and what you have to do is you have to look at all the pieces that you have and you've got to be, how do I tell this? It's all storytelling again, but it's like, how do I put all these pieces together and, and tell the story the most interesting and concise way possible? You know, like sometimes you write a sentence and you think, okay, what can I take? The best writers take a sentence and say, what can I take out of this to say the same thing in fewer words? And it's almost like this constant reduction until you get the most concise, compelling uh, way of saying something. And that's essentially what you're doing when you're trying to build, when you're trying to tell brand stories is, okay, I've got 1966. I've got these guys who came over to make a tennis shoe uh, in California you know, white sneakers are trending. These are all the pieces. And I realized that it really came down to three words, which was heritage, American tennis. And when, when we did that, say we're an old brand, we're a tennis specialist, and we were founded in California. So heritage, American tennis, we were the only heritage, American tennis brand in the sneaker world. So we, we also gave ourselves something. We were unique. Then I went to retailers and said, hey, we're a heritage American tennis brand. And they all sort of nodded. Yeah, we know that. And that fits. And that that sounds about right. And I said, hey, you're hearing the white sneaker trend is coming, right? And everyone was like, yeah, that's the buzz of the industry. And I said, okay, well, if white sneakers are the next big thing, and we're the only heritage American tennis brand, then you've got to have us in the mix. And, you know, I batted a thousand on that. Everyone went, yeah, let's see the shoes. (laughs) that's awesome but the exercise was really you know it's you could have gone a thousand different ways with the with the pieces of the puzzle on the table but we put the right ones together to that was authentic to what we really were but also critically that they lined up against the market opportunity you know i could have told a great story about how we're the you know the, the the number one you know mesh running shoes, you know, for marathons. But if that wasn't what the market was buying, then I have a great story that's irrelevant in terms of selling shoes. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. I mean, that's that's gold right there, Barney. Thank you. I mean, that, yeah. you know, we, we have a billion stories, right? And I think, you know, one of the questions I get all the time is what story do I tell? And I think you just gave uh, a lot well, of people and, and that timing, answer. You know? Yeah, timing is so critical. You know, there are the- there's thematics, even if you look at society today and politics and the news, okay, themes are bubbling up every day and then they're going away again. They ebb and flow of themes and there's certain things happening in society now that if you wrote a book now about something, you know, maybe it's um, immigration or something about a a family's 
journey to America. Okay, it's going to be way more topical now than if you did that, you know, a few years ago, or maybe even in six months' time. So it's also about not only telling a great story, but lining up the timing to when you can have the most impact. And I think that's probably the exercise that worked for us when looking back two years ago. Yeah. And so I wanted to ask, I mean, do you do that as an actual exercise or is it more abstract for you just having your pulse on the zeitgeist of what's going on? Or do you as a team literally get in a room and, and say, hey, what's going on right now? And, and, and how do we connect with these different plot points of, of yeah, uh, present I think day? constantly doing that. And, and I think you have to be constantly ear to the ground in whatever industry you're in. And you're looking for, yeah. So, so how do I stay up on what's going on? It's just like I'm consuming it all day, every day, whether I, I'm, I'm in, in a sneaker company surrounded by professional sneaker people. So all we do is talk about this stuff and we're all passionate fans of it. Um, so we're not talking about it in a scientific way. We're talking about it because we love it, you know, and we're visiting sneaker stores and we're looking at the right websites and blogs and we're sort of consuming culture. And I think that's that's really important that that's that you're doing that. And, and that's why it's good to align your career with something you believe in, because then that's effortless. You know, it's like if I was, I don't want to be, if I was in the pet food business, I, it'd be hard for me to research pets all day if that's if I'm not into animals, you know? So <laughs> lucky that it, it sort of, that's a natural thing. And, and then at the same time, there are some scientific ways of doing it as well, or not scientific, but there's other ways like you can follow certain, you can read obviously a lot of reports about where things are going and, and trend of market share data and things like that. And in our industry, you can also look at apparel trends as, as signifiers of things that could have an influence on footwear. You know, we found that, that uh, pants and legwear has an influence on shoes because it has been proven recently with the with the growth of women wearing yoga pants casually, the, the denim business really suffered. You know, Lululemon took off, but what that also did is it made women buy a lot more athletic running shoes to fit with the pants. So in that case, the 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 pant was what really was the canary in the coal mine that signaled a change in sneakers, and that's happened many times before, uh, where. You know, people wearing skinny jeans really was was in concert with people wearing Converse Chuck Taylors and them taking over the market because, again, those profiles of the, sh the pants and the shoes fit together. So if you ex extrapolate that over time, you can almost watch pant trends as an indicator of what's coming next in footwear in terms of shape and silhouette. <laughs> well, and I've noticed that all the, the young people around us are now pegging their jeans and, and wearing uh, acid wash right. styles once again. So, you know, well, that's right. So, so, you know, just applying that to other industries is, you know, you can look at your industry, but you, there might be other indicators that you could look at to signify change coming and, and keep an eye on, the, on those as well. <laughs> I love it. I, I just imagine maybe at K-Swiss, you guys have like the, the pant profile index up on the, up, up on the wall or something, That's right? right? Yeah. And it's like almost like the stock exchange, but like where, <laughs> where, where, where the pant right. style is going and you know, what's the ticker look like? That's right. <laughs> so you've gone on and you did some, you know, I think very savvy and smart business things. You mentioned the things that weren't as fun, but then, you know, K-Swiss as, as of late has done some actually very fun things when it comes to to branding and marketing. Uh, one that comes to mind is uh, the Kenny Powers ads that you you ran. Were you involved with those, or was that? No, and that was really that was really just before my time. And I think you know, looking back, that was a huge, impactful campaign in terms of the viewership, but it didn't save the company. You know, it it, it didn't convert to sales. It was huge eyeballs. 
and vi virality, but not didn't you know really make a difference in the on the bottom line. Yeah, and I think that's so important to point out that you know we do so many things as marketers, as branders. If it's if it's not aligned with the people that are our core demographic and the people that we're going to sell to and connect with, again, you're going to have great uh, viral videos. People are going to ask you about it on podcasts, but it doesn't affect your numbers. Yeah, and look, product sales and marketing have to be aligned. In in other words, if marketing creates an amazing campaign and gets a ton of eyeballs, and then that consumer goes to the mall at the weekend, but there's no K-Swishers in the stores, then that, that brand awareness cannot be converted to a sale. So you've got to be careful that you're not marketing isn't generating demand that can't be fulfilled because sales hasn't been aligned on the plan. You know, and that happens a lot in big companies where those, you know, those three entities are operating independently. They have to be aligned uh, and on the same page. And I think if I went back and, you know, it's easy to look at after the fact, but if I critiqued, you know, the, the case was before my time of that Kenny Powers thing, that's probably what I would say would, could be improved in it. Yeah. And, and that's a great uh, kind of change of direction, or at least to, I'll build on that a little bit because in, you know, doing my pre, my pre-show research and everything, you know, the, the next big campaign that, that came for K-Swiss that, that everyone's talking about right now is, is your relationship with Gary Vaynerchuk and this Generation K campaign and, and targeting sneakers to CEOs and entrepreneurs. And, that yeah. you, and then in lockstep with that, just talking about that consistency and alignment, you've, you've launched a, uh, a podcast on K-Swiss radio called CEOs Wear Sneakers. So that's all right. you know, nicely aligned. And so like, let's go there. Tell me about, you know, again, I have this vision of you sitting in a room doing your typical branding chart with your XY access plotting, who owns what, where is Nike, where is uh, Adidas, Puma, Reebok, and there's this big white space and it says entrepreneurs and Barney's, and Barney's, yeah. and Barney's like, ah, we got some white space, but exactly. that's, that's, that's my version. I'd love to hear your version. <laughs> well, that, that's pretty much that, that, that's sort of how it went down in a, in a, but it took a lot longer than that. But essentially that, that is the, that was the plan or that was the, the, the move, which is, I just felt like we couldn't win if we tried to sign athletes and, and be, make better running shoes than, you know, the 10 running brands already out there. It just, just didn't make sense to me, you know, and Casewis was making running shoes at the time. And that's one of the first things I did is said, we're getting out of that running business because we're not going to be better than Asics and Brooks and Mizuno and Reebok, Saucony, Nike, Under Armour, Reebok. <laughs> you know, I've just named God knows how many without even getting to, the, the, you know, the others. So I just thought that, that that's not, going to be where we can win and and also it wasn't case which is authentic heritage either so even when you do it the consumer and the retailers looking at you like case swiss running really well when you say tennis they're like oh yeah that's what we thought you were you know it's really hard to shift somebody's perception i mean that's probably one of the things about having an older brand is the good news is that people really like and trust in the longevity of a brand the the downside is you know you've got this baggage because it's hard to change the perception of that brand because that perception of the brand resi resides in somebody else's mind, not in yours. In other words, it doesn't matter what I think it is. It matters what the consumer thinks it is. And for me to change, to get into their head and change something is so difficult. So I think, you know, this, you are what you are and, and it's really hard to, to try and change it into something else. So uh, Casewiss is a running brand. 
or a sports brand, I just felt was unwinnable. And then at this, what Adidas had done was started to sign rappers and they changed the game a little bit by kind of going away from sports, which was always the sneaker formula was sneaker plus athlete. Um, and Adidas started to sign, you know, realize that these rappers and entertainers and celebrities were the new heroes and they stole a lot of attention. And I realized I couldn't win by doing that either because there's no, my budget isn't going to sign somebody who's better than Kanye for Adidas. So by signing a small budget rapper, I would have looked like a small budget brand. So it was really about competitive differentiation was the reason we jumped into the entrepreneur thing, along with the fact that it really was happening. It wasn't just some, you know, again, it's like you can come up with a, with a, with an open lane, but if that lane isn't got any traffic on it, there's no point going down it. But so on the one hand, we realized that entrepreneurship was open. And the second thing we realized was that it was really happening. And it didn't take much looking to realize that, you know, as you know yourself, um, everyone I talked to, no one's ever said like, no, I don't believe that's true. Everyone's gone, yeah, that's what young people are trying to be now. So I think we just hit a really, you know, a lot of things came together, which was this lane was open. It kind of fit the brand because we were from tennis. So that's a sort of aspirational country club, you know, high-end sport. So it wasn't a stretch to be in entrepreneurship. I've almost felt like the old K-Swiss world was the country club of the dark wood paneling. And the modern K-Swiss world is, is like a WeWork, which is like the modernization of that country club vibe. So, you know, it sort of dovetailed the, the heritage and the modern. And, um, and that's, that, that spark is what's carried us. And we've just jumped right into that. It's taken us a while to sort of get everybody on board and bring it to life. And then obviously Gary V was, was our Jordan, you know, if you talk about Nike with athletes, um, and, and he's really brought this thing to life. Yeah. And so, and I'd love to talk about uh, Gary V and kind of how you got him aboard. But before we do that, I mean, when you were like, like, so this is the kind of thing, like everyone can go like, yeah, yeah, th- this makes total sense. It's totally obvious in, in hindsight, now that you're doing it and you're executing on it so well. But I mean, you know, was there a moment where you were just looking around and had this like cinematic movie moment where you're looking around maybe at a WeWork or at a conference and you see all these young CEOs, all these entrepreneurs wearing sneakers and the light bulb goes off? Well, yeah, actually, funny enough, there was a moment that I, I can remember where I, and there was, a, there was a lot of them, but there's one I really remember, which was there was a trade show called the Agenda Trade Show in Long Beach, which was a, a B2B show for the surf skate industry and a lot of sneaker brands show there. And they have a side event where some speakers would, would do, you know, keynotes. And they have different CEOs from sneaker companies or streetwear brands or surf companies speak. And and I remember, I've, I can't remember who was speaking. I think it was the CEO of Stance Socks. And I looked around the audience and there were all these young skate kids. And they were like, you know, some of them had their skateboards with them. And they were, not only were they sitting in an auditorium listening to a, to a, basically a keynote speech, but they were taking notes they're like taking notes as they listened. And I just thought, well, this is it. Writing, <laughs> these do not look like student types who are interested in business, but here they are, not only being in the room, but taking notes. I thought, this is it. This is happening right in front of my eyes. <laughs> so cool. I, I love thinking of that moment. And thank you for painting yeah. that picture. So yeah, let's talk about, you know, I also would love to hear the story about how you went out and got your Jordan. I mean, uh, Gary V, Gary Vaynerchuk uh, is not 
someone who has a ton of time, you know, and he's not, and, and, yeah. you know, was, was he receptive immediately to your outreach? Was he like, he was, yeah. this Barney guy, like, you know, asking me about sneakers. He was very receptive because I, I was offering him a signature sneaker. And I mean, there's not going to be many people who wouldn't want to do that. So with the hindsight, I'm like, I had a really good offer and he was certainly was very busy, but he was not the same uh, level that he is today. You know, I'm going back to, I think he had 600,000 followers on Instagram back then. And now he has, four and a half million or maybe five million. So um, he was not the Gary V he is today, but he was definitely still the guy, the only guy I could really, that kept bubbling up in my feed as being the guy talking about entrepreneurship and and in married with youth culture, you know, doing it in a cool way. And I just was really struggling to find someone who was an authentic entrepreneur, but also a cool aspirational person for young people. You know, it's easy to find one or the other, but it was very hard to find both. And even then, I'm just like thinking, man, this Gary Vee guy is the guy, but he's not the typical sneaker endorser. And even he said it himself. He's like, hey, this thing could go either way, you know, and if it goes horribly wrong, I'll, I'll use it as a joke in my old age. Like, remember when I thought I could have a sneaker? So he was sort of hedging. But I wrote to him and, I, and you know, I wrote uh, info at Gary Vee or whatever it was and said, made it a really concise pitch which said something like hey i believe that entrepreneurs are the new heroes of youth culture and athletes the idea of playing for the yankees is a bit old-fashioned and i think you're the face of that how about we make the first signature sneaker for an entrepreneur that was it (laughs) his team responded right away and he responded actually his team responded said let's set up a meeting and then i got an email from gary about an hour later and it was just a smiley face emoticon (laughs) <laughs> talk about concise right <laughs> yeah and it's funny because gary since told said you know i've heard him say that he he can't remember the last time he wrote in the body of an email <laughs> well just read the subject line you know he operates in like really small increments like if he books a meeting it could be like you know six minutes scheduled <laughs> I, I need to take a lesson from that for sure and yeah and that, that's so incredible and so how long did it take you to actually you know when you reached out to gary and, and, and started the, the collaboration like how long did it does it take to actually produce a sneaker like that well you know if you're designing ground up sneakers it can take a long time if you're really designing from the bottom up it could take 18 months once you've factored in you know producing it selling it the whole nine yards that's so long now and in a, in, a, in a culture which is, wants immediate satisfaction and trends are shifting so fast. You know, if, some, if a meme comes out this afternoon, someone's got a T-shirt available tomorrow. So everyone's had to shrink their timelines down in other industries to keep up with, with what's happening out there. So, but even for us, a fast sneaker that's just a different color up of an existing style, you know, could be, you know, three months, three to, four, three to six months to produce them and get them shipped over here. So it can take some time. But in the case in the case of Gary, I mean, it was probably under a year before we had the shoe ready to, ready to go. Yeah. And, and how did you know it was going to, you know, that it was a success? I mean, as, as you mentioned, uh, you and Gary are thinking, oh, this could go either way. And you launch and what happens? Well, actually what happened was, well, this, first of all, we launched it at midnight, um, which was, well, it was nine Pacific. And I remember that, I was in New York, so it was midnight, and um, the, the the site crashed at twelve oh one. So as soon as the thing went live, the it just the traffic uh, killed our website, and which was shocking and also not a good look for us. But 
And then in within by 12 p.m. the next day, so within 12 hours, we'd sold we'd sold everything. It was gone. And you're, I mean, are you sitting around just thinking like, I, I can't believe this? Are you thinking I knew this would happen? Uh, I felt like I told you so to everyone. <laughs> 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 because I've been, you know, it was like validation of what I've been saying for so long that I felt like this was the right thing to do and that there was something here and this was the guy. And I think, you know, people had, there were so many reservations. I think even, yeah, it was, that was my instinct was like, you see, I, you know, we were right. I knew it or something along those lines, but that may have been 50% relief. (laughs) Uh, I love it. And so you've been validated, you know, this is a space you're going to play, you know, you have your podcast, which is really cool. Your, the, the tagline and the description talks about how the case Swiss team talks to CEOs, entrepreneurs, and go-getters who inspire us to hustle hard and to reach our potential. Yeah. We find out how they did it and the lessons learned along the way. So that, that seems like an amazing channel, an amazing way to connect uh, through entrepreneurs. What else are you doing with K-Swiss? Are you looking to sign additional entrepreneur athletes or entre-athletes maybe we can coin the yeah, term? Yeah, it's funny you say that because there's such parallels. I remember I grabbed a pair of Gary's sneakers that he was switching sneakers for, an, for a, a, a video. And I said, can I have the ones you just took off? Because you know they're and because and, I was calling them game-worn. You know, which is such an <laughs> athletic term. I mean, he's a game-worn Gary V sneakers, you know. So there's such parallels now. It's funny. But, you know, CEOs Wear Sneakers, the podcast, is is really us contributing to the culture of entrepreneurship and not, you know, not selling sneakers on it, but just, you know, inspiring people by showcasing young entrepreneurs who is our consumer target or our consumer muse. And I think brands have to do that. You can't just be about the product and the sell these days. You've got to make... You've got to add value beyond the product and 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 stand for something. And I think the CEOs wear sneakers podcast is an effort to do that. And CEOs wear sneakers as a name just is sort of a saying things have changed. You know, people who run companies now are not old white people in suits. They are could be anyone, multi gender, multi racial, multi age, and that's the beauty of it is that anybody could be a CEO. You just don't you can't tell by what they wear, and in many cases or what they look like. And in many cases, they're wearing jeans and sneakers. So that's CEOs wear sneakers. But also the idea of podcasting and uh, me being on podcasts like this and some of the video content we create uh, is about brand transparency, which is another theme I think that is a expect- bit of an expectation these days for any business is people want to know like who you are and what you stand for. And, uh, you know, the companies can't really be faceless anymore. And so... We're trying to be as transparent as possible as I think that could set us apart from some of our bigger competition who would have a harder time being able to do that just because, again, because of that internal structure and politics and hierarchy of being in a bigger business. You've got bigger responsibilities. For us, we can be really nimble uh, and, and make quick decisions like, hey, let's make a video about, about what we're doing here and stick it on YouTube, which is what we've done. Yeah, and I think it's really cool. And you know, I, I love that while your your title's president and you, you talked about, hey, I had to go in, I had to do a lot of the the not fun president stuff, like uh cost cutting and you know, managing uh the the financials and things like that. But I noticed that you do a ton of brand building yourself. And I think that really is, you know, what you're talking about, that brand transparency. Most brands, the the president can't, you know 
be on a podcast, can't be you know either appearing or hosting their own. They can't be doing all these things where they are uh, very visible in, in the business from a, a brand building uh, perspective. And and I, I just get the sense that you know, and I think you mentioned that you love marketing and that, that you love this this process of brand building and, and, and being involved in it. Yeah, and I think these days branding is becoming much more important for companies. You know, I just feel like we always pick our presidents or CEOs from the commercial side, you know, either the CFO or the head of sales. And, you know, brand is probably the most important thing now because, you know, there's parity in features and functions. Anyone can make anything now, right? So I could make a great toothbrush tomorrow and put it online and have a Shopify site and or toothpaste or jelly or anything. So once you have the ability, like distribution is now open to anyone, reaching an audience is open to anyone through social, and building product is open to anyone, then the only differentiator is going to be your brand. So I feel like branding is is raised in importance. And so if you're not a company that is solidifying what your brand stands for and building what your brand stands for and then communicating that, then you're going to be in trouble because someone's going to come along and make the same product as you and they're going to do it faster, cheaper or better. Uh, They're going to cut out wholesale and do it direct to consumer and you're going to be a dinosaur. So I feel like branding, I wouldn't, if you're branding people out there, I would, you know, you know, I would feel like you should not hide that. You should, that should be a badge of honor right now. But I think you're going to become strategically a lot more important. Yeah, and you know, and I don't know if this is you know something you've consciously done, but again, I just pick up on the fact that you really align with uh, Gary V's uh, clouds and the dirt philosophy as well. That you know, you're you're running this business, you're doing a lot of the things that you have to do uh, from a visionary standpoint, but you're also you know, in the dirt, like building the brand, yes. appearing on the podcast and, and working really hard. And I think that, you know, is an extended lesson of, of what it means to build a brand. I mean, I think that's a really great example. And I don't know if that was a conscious decision prior to, if that's the way you've always been, or if, you know, you picked well, that up, you know, with, with think, Gary. Yeah, I think, I think I've always been that way. And I, and I think also this is like a startup, you know, we're not some big fat company that's, you know, over-resourced and tons of money. We're, fighting tooth and nail every day to, you know, sell every pair of shoes. So we have to be, um, have our sleeves rolled up and doing multiple jobs because we're a challenger brand that's fighting for its future, you know, so the same as any startup or entrepreneurial company is doing. So I think that's probably true of us as well. We just have a, an old company name that people recognize. So maybe it's assumed that we're, you know, have more resources than we do. And I, I think we'll get back to there, no question. But right now we're in a all hands on deck mode. And then, you know, I struggle with the idea of myself being the host of the podcast or on video or, you know, how much, you know, how much is, should it be about me? And I, and I think it should be about us, not just me. And I, hopefully I'm other people are on our, on our platforms from our company that people get to know as well. But, you know, I think this is what can separate us, separate us. I feel like it's a competitive advantage that we should use. You know, it's like you could be, being small can be a disadvantage, but how do you turn that into an advantage? Uh, and that is by saying, well, look, we can be much more transparent than our bigger competition. So now we've made our size an advantage, not a disadvantage. And 
by doing that is by us being able to speak out and for us to get people to know who we are. And if you write to me on Instagram, I'll probably write you back, you know, and if you put a comment on our LinkedIn, we'll probably respond to you. And that's different than a lot of other brands. So, and you know who our people are now because you may have watched our YouTube show or you may have listened to our podcast. And I think that's an advantage. Yeah, and I agree. I I think it's a complete advantage to have that connectivity and that con- human connection. You know, people really crave that more and more. And you know, so many times, even like I don't know if you ever had this happen, but like sometimes I'll send up a, a prospecting email, much like the one you sent to Gary V. Like, hey, I've got this idea, blah blah blah. And someone will be like, "Is this a, a bot? Like, or take me off your list?" I'm like, "No, no, like this is actually me." But everyone is so everyone is so have their you know afraid right of of, of uh, this lack. Yeah. And, and, you know, I always use this phrase, like, why not me? You know, like, why not? Give me a better reason why. Isn't, there's fewer reasons uh, why not than there are about what the benefit is. It's like, have, you know, it's okay to be confident and to go for it, you know. And I think, I definitely think Gary has shown us the way there. And without sort of blowing too much smoke at Gary, is like he's evidence of how this can work and the benefit of doing it as long as it's genuine and as long as you're providing value and not just being like, hey, it's the me show, but like, hey, let me bring you something or let me interview someone that I think you're going to find fascinating and let me pull the lessons out that could maybe add some value to you. You know, I just had someone just email me the other day and said, hey, you know, I did a speech at an event and the event organizer said, well, I just got this email from someone who said, based on Barney's speech, we we aligned a lot of the lessons from that speech into the business we just created. And we've just done $600,000 of sales based on a lot of those principles around competitive positioning and branding. I was like, that was amazing. You know, I never would have thought that, you know. So if you can do that, then why not do it? Yeah, yeah. I hope you charged a lot for that speech. That, that <laughs> no, of, no, I don't. <laughs> because, <lot> value. <laughs> no, I definitely don't because I feel like uh, that would be crossing a line. I'm not, that, that's definitely not, uh, yeah, if I'm going to do it, I, I do it for free. Yeah. And so, you know, you've been incredibly successful. You're, you're, this is a great, you know, what I'd call American turnaround story of, of this brand. And, and you've talked a lot about the successes, but like, what's really hard about building a brand? Like, what don't we know? Well, I th- it's hard to fail. It's hard to be. It's hard to not be good. And we had a lot of spent a lot of time with a brand that was struggling. And it's tough. You know, it's tough to motivate your team when the results are not good. Um, it's you're selling future potential versus what's happening right now. Um, it's hard to retain talent when you're not successful. You have to change personnel in many cases. Whether you've got to shrink the company or put new blood in some places and that's awful for everybody involved. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of downsides to successfully turning a brand around. There's a lot of disruption uh, to people and families and all of those things. So yeah, we've had some really dark times and uh, along the way. And I think our success is, is very young. You know, we're going to have a nice year this year and we should have a good year next year if we if we achieve what we've set ourselves out to do. But we we have a long way to go before we reach the potential that we think this brand can have. So we're you know we're a long way from popping any champagne. And like you said earlier, as entrepreneurs, we don't celebrate. And and I think the reason we don't is because if you're really an entrepreneur or if you're really driven, you're not in it for the champagne. You're in it for the journey. And if ever you end up sort of quote unquote making it people who think this way will just go and find something else broken and start again. Cause it's the, it's the sort of the hustle that we enjoy. 
<laughs> yeah, you know, and I, I I come from a movie background, and every great character has uh, this thing wants versus needs, and I think you you just outlined that for uh, the character of the entrepreneur, like they all want success, but they really need that journey. You know, they need that challenge, yeah. and they yeah. you know, and they don't realize that probably until they until at some point, you know, they have a, they have a moment. But uh, yeah, so, so so I wouldn't ever position myself as look at what a success I am. I would say this is a work in pro progress. You know, we've, we've taken some risks. I think that's something I would be proud of, I guess, is you know, we took some risks. They, they paid off so far. Um, we, you know, we've, we've failed as much as we've succeeded and, and our story is not by any, by any means written yet. So it's an ongoing process. Well, yeah. And that, and that leads me to ask what's next for, for K-Swiss? Like what are you most excited about? Well, I think we've got some great partnership programs coming out with some really interesting properties. We're leaning into the 90s trend and we've got some great, uh, got a couple of movie collaborations coming out from 90s movies. I think it'll be really fun. Um, we've got more Gary V's uh, shoes coming out. Uh, he's We're moving forward with that. So we've just launched the 003 this year. So next year will be the 004. We're planning the launch of the 004. So that'll be exciting. That continues to build uh, in, in momentum, the Gary V partnership. And, and then we've also got some other shoes for entrepreneurs that are more purpose-built for the entrepreneur lifestyle, which I'm really excited about. So we spend a lot of time at our local WeWork talking to entrepreneurs about, you know, how they operate, what they do, what they need. And we've, we've sort of taken those nuggets and, and built a product brief and that should be coming out next year as well. So uh, a lot of things. And then even in, in our North Star of tennis, the game of tennis, we made huge strides in our tennis business. Our tennis shoes now are, I think we just moved ourselves into the number three share position. I think we were number five or six when we started a couple of years ago. And we are, uh, we are going from strength to strength. We're closing in on number two in the tennis businesses from a share position. And our shoes are really getting good. So yeah, there's just tons going on. Uh, super exciting. And we'll make sure to link to uh, all those uh, resources and links in our show notes and make sure people have the opportunity to, to get their own uh, pair of K-Swiss. And so that'll, yeah. be, that'll be really, really exciting. And so uh, as we come to a close here, Barney, you know, a question that we ask everyone on the show is, what would the 20-year-old you say if they ran into you today? Uh, I think, first of all, they'd say, well, what the hell are you doing in America? <laughs> 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 that wasn't part of the plan. I've been here 20 some years now and they'd probably be really proud of my family. They'd probably look at my wife and my kids and be like, man, that is everything you ever dreamed of. Honestly, that that's the way I feel. <laughs> that's so great. My 20 year old self, if I were uh, a president of a shoe company, would be like, I can't believe you sell shoes. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That could be number three. <laughs> well, Barney, thank you so much for coming on. It, it was great. And I uh, really appreciate you taking the time. Like I said, we'll link to everything, uh, all case Swiss in the show notes and make sure people have an opportunity to, uh, to purchase some of these shoes for the entrepreneurial lifestyle. Great. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate it. Wow. Thanks, Barney. I felt like there were 20 gold nuggets in that interview. And if you're wondering how to take on that 800-pound gorilla in your industry, and I doubt the brands that you are competing against are bigger than Nike and Under Armour and Adidas, Barney just gave you the formula. And I also love hearing how K-Swiss is leaning into its own backstory, heritage American tennis, and finding new opportunities and markets while never forgetting how they got here, and more importantly, who they are. 
After our interview, we got to talking, and Barney graciously offered to send me a pair of K-Swiss. I have never received anything from an interview before, nor do I expect to, but a few days later, a pair of Gary V signature shoes in the Dark Clouds model arrived at my house, and they now have worked their way into my regular rotation. Awesome shoes for anyone who's listening. Thank you, Barney, for my Dark Clouds. I love them. Well, thanks for listening. That's our show for today. Until next time. Make sure to visit our website, www.wildstory.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. I like big stories and I cannot lie. You other storytellers can't deny. Baby got backstory. You'll also find free story downloads and resources to help you integrate the power of story into your business. 